you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hi, Will. Hey, David. Hello, listeners on the internet, and welcome to episode 30 of the Common Descent Podcast. I'd blow a trumpet if I had one. Do, 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 do. That's how a trumpet sounds. Burr, burr, burr. <laughs> Those Common Descent trumpets. <laughs> uh, we spare no too much, Too much water. So today's episode <laughs> is about... Man, I'm excited. I'm, just, I'm excited just to say the title of today's episode. <laughs> episode 30, Prehistoric Poop. I, it's it's going to be hard to resist just not ting <laughs> to punctuate. <laughs> oh, man. Believe it or so, not, I didn't even think about that. I, it's, ooh, I, like, I'm going to have to hold back every other sentence. <laughs> All right. We're going to try to keep the poop sounds to, All right. there you go. to a hope... minimum. Today's episode, you can here's who you can blame. <laughs> for for all the the immature jokes that we are no doubt going to be making throughout this episode. Yeah. This was requested by Lauren Carter. Now Lauren is an avid interactor with us on mm-hmm. Twitter and on Facebook, which is awesome, and she is also a patron. Yeah. Which makes this the first patron requested episode actually. That's true. How about that? Big thanks for all of that. To Lauren, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lauren, for the patronage and the poop idea. So today we're going to be talking about fossilized feces, which is a phenomenon that is actually really quite diverse and interesting. Quite fascinating. <laughs> I'm gonna, also going to try to keep my alliteration down because <laughs> it's really, boy, it just, it just, to, to use a phrase, just pours right out. So we are going to be talking about all the various wonderful shapes and sizes that we can get fossilized poop and what we can learn from coprolites yeah the substance of fossilized excrement Mm -hmm. before we get to that speaking of patronage it is march now welcome to march everybody hello and that means that once again we have entered a new month brought to you by Audience members like Lauren and like the handful of other people who have decided generously to donate their uh, support to us on Patreon. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Patrons get a bunch of benefits. We'll call your name out on the podcast. You get to ask us questions. There's all Mm -hmm. sorts of fun ways to interact with us. And your support not only helps us keep the podcast on the air, on the waves, on the web. On the wires. On the wire, on the tubes. (laughs) But it, it has begun to allow us to upgrade. Indeed. Will and I are both coming to you this time from the other end of wonderful Blue Yeti microphones. Yeah, it's nice and fancy. We are very excited. Hopefully this episode sounds different. Uh, hopefully it sounds better. I was going to say different in a good way. <laughs> different in a good way. aiming for. <laughs> we'll be working out the best way to, to make use of these mics and stuff as we go but the patronage is paying off and we really really appreciate it yes thank you so much this is this is incredible speaking of audience interaction another thing that we love our audience members to keep an eye out for we have been putting together audience surveys yeah 
Uh, at the end of every episode, we always tell you we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you what you want to what you have to say, and we still do. And for those of you that find that a little bit too open ended, we have constructed a series of questions that we would love to hear you answer to give us the best idea of who our audience is and what they want and where we should go in the future. Yeah. So keep an eye out uh, sometime pretty soon. If not when this episode comes out, then shortly after that, we will have a survey online and we'll keep an eye on our social media sites. We'll be spreading it around. Yeah, so so now you can answer very specific questions to let us know what you're thinking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we will take them to heart because we got to say, every time we, we hear from audience members it's the best that is the best part that's the best part of this thing absolutely and you have two people who have too much fun crunching data so we absolutely are going to take every single survey result and (laughs) enjoy comparing oh you have you have no idea (laughs) maybe that's something we'll we'll do for the patrons is show them some of our stat sheets (laughs) can they see the time i just decided to see if rolling two dice actually did break down into <laughs> i meant podcast related stats okay, sheets, but okay, fine okay <laughs> not not quite that awkward <laughs> do you guys want to see how many downloads every one of our episodes gets in certain intervals of days after it's released <sighs> well speaking of of stats uh, our stats have recently been completely thrown out of whack by the fact that we have put all of our episodes on youtube indeed so if you prefer to get your podcast in video playlist format, mm-hmm. check it out. We are now officially uploading every episode we do to the YouTubes so you can see it and hear it there. Now you can watch our logo and listen to us too. Yes, a delightful Podbean uh, graphic yeah, that comes yeah. up on the screen, which mm-hmm. is way cooler than the first episode that we put up there. Yeah. <laughs> so... The announcement's out of the way. Before we dive deep into the subject of droppings, every episode we gather a handful of pieces of paleontology and evolution-related news Mm -hmm. from around the newsverse to keep ourselves and you guys out in the world up to date on sort of what's going on out there. Will? Yep. Let's start the news. All right. Now, I, I... Warn you all, my first one's a bit odd, and we've had a couple like this, but this is a plant news article. Whoa. Uh, hang yep, on a second. Yep. Not even about fossil plants. This is actually about modern plants. Are you sure you're on the right podcast? Yeah, I'm not sure. Made a wrong turn, <laughs> but we're going to power through. We're going to Let's blaze see ahead. what you have to say about plants. So, there is a study on toxins in plants that yielded a very interesting find that suggests that some toxic plants may actually be able to detoxify as a benefit for survival. Interesting. Yeah, it's not what you typically expect, but it's because a certain group of plants, the dog bane, which I can only assume is named for the fact of dogs chewing on it and bad things happening. Well, it's what you make a sword out of when you have to fight like hellhounds. Yeah, absolutely. It's like wolf's bane, but... Just for exactly. not werewolf. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, keeps away I, schnauzers. I can only assume. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a group of plants called the Apocnaceae family. And these are very common plants with toxins, the, the milkweeds and things like that. Okay. Uh, they form a toxin that are pryolizidine alkaloids. Okay. And 
they're fairly toxic, uh, very strong. They can harm humans. Uh, they even said that some of them can cause liver cancer if prolonged exposure is allowed. So these are serious and they're meant to deter predators, uh, herbivores. Right, right. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's a very common thing among plants is if I don't want to be eaten, I either have to be hard to chew or distasteful or deadly. And so they went the deadly route. But as when I mentioned milkweed, some of you may recognize these plants are actually targeted by caterpillar, the caterpillars of certain butterflies. And they chew on these plants specifically to get these, they call them PA toxins, or the PAs instead of the whole uh, long word. But they target to get these PAs. Yeah, they absorb them and, and make themselves toxic. Integrated into their system, make themselves toxic. The monarch butterfly does this. The uh, three other common ones are the, the milkweed, the clear wings do this, which I didn't know. And the denaeinae hmm. all seek this out. So this has actually turned their positive poison defense into a slight negative because it's actually made them a target so it's backfired yeah so it's it's you've gotten so toxic that it has made you desirable for certain groups that have become immune to you and found a way to utilize that toxin interesting so uh live schultz et al live schultz and their research team asked the question whether or not these plants would detoxify in response to this would they would they start to get rid of their toxins to stop being a target for these caterpillars interesting the, the idea being that that what was once an advantage trait mm -hmm. is now being used against them so this is now a disadvantageous yeah. trait so would, it be would they undo against? their toxic evolution yeah, yes yeah. and they called it de-escalation de-escalating their defenses huh and in New Phytologist, they published their findings, and what they did is they looked at a number of species of the Apocnaceae family and sequenced the DNA, and they were looking for genes or evidence of the enzyme homospermidine synthase, HSS hmm. is what they mm -hmm. uh, shorten it to, which is, a, is used in the production for their PA toxins. And... Okay. They found evidence for this one in an interesting way in some of them, because not all of the this family are toxic. Not all the plants have this toxin, but they found orthologs for the HSS enzyme, which is sequ sequences of DNA evolved from a common ancestor. Uh -huh, okay, so like sister yeah. genes, basically. So what this means is these now non-toxic plants have genes from an ancestor that had the toxin. Interesting. So somewhere along the line, they lost that toxicity. And the evidence from, from what they found with their research suggests that this, the, or this type of toxicity only evolved once. It's not a multiple popping up thing. It evolved once and right. spread and, and diversified. And some of them have lost it. This is the case that supports the de-escalation hypothesis that potentially these were doing that to stop being the target for their, their specialized caterpillars. This is a really interesting example of the there, there is a one of the one of the big misconceptions that comes up when you talk about evolution is this notion that evolution 
aims at a thing and then stops. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it, it's easy to get that idea in your head and, and be mistaken by that. This is a really cool case study mm-hmm. that shows even once you have evolved a seemingly great trait, it's only a matter of time before the situation changes and now your lineage is being pressured to change it again. Yeah. It's being pre- There's selective pressure for you to, all right, well, this was good. Now something else has evolved to a point where we have to change again. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, they, they always call it the evolutionary arms race because mm-hmm. military arms races are one of the, the most closely compared human endeavors that mimics right, right. natural selection in the, the... Sticks, swords, bows, guns, yep. tanks. If, it's what is the, the line. If you come at him with a knife, he'll come at you with a bat. If you, you know, if you come at him with a bat, he'll come at you with a gun. It's, it, I can't remember which yep. movie that's from, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's that idea it's also the the note at the end of Batman Begins. Yes. When he points out that mm-hmm. now that there's a superhero, there are going to be super villains yep. trying to keep up. Yep. Uh, our mere presence invites, uh, 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 what is it? Um, <laughs> confrontation. Confrontation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's the same concept if you go back to uh, World War One when that was the trench warfare and trenches mm-hmm. were one of the best ways to keep an invading army from being able to just run over. Now, it was just as hard for you to run over, so trenches were you know, horrific. But it was yeah. a good way to keep advances slow until tanks. Yes, and now it's escalated and again. now we don't use trenches. We didn't just keep building yep. trenches because <laughs> it wasn't working anymore. That would have been wasted energy, just like these toxins were, are very complex things to make. And so it's a waste of energy when it's not doing its job the way you need it to. So this is the evolutionary version of the, I don't want to say a peace treaty, but a retreat. Yeah, exactly. It's right. We've backed down. Mm-hmm. We're de-escalate. That's a great term to use for it. It really is de-escalation. Now they point out, and this is this is still uh, you know early findings. So mm-hmm. the, you know it's support for that hypothesis. But they also point out that if this is what is happening. It has the downside of this now leaves them open to the predators they originally were chasing off with that toxin. So yep. more general predators <laughs> can now start to focus on them again or, or feed on them. One of the things they said that they could be a follow-up to the study would to be look at is the cost of specialized caterpillar predation outweighing generalized predation for these plants. Is, yeah, is where, that where's really, the balance? Mm-hmm. So is getting rid of your toxin actually worth it to get rid of these specialized caterpillars to then have to put up with a more wide variety? And now this isn't the only toxin they have. They do have others, but this is a a particularly notable one. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Weird things that plants can do. My first news piece, which was going to be my second, but now I realize that it's so similar to that (laughs) news piece that I'm going to bring it up now, is another interesting i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna use the word reversal of evolutionary process even though that's a little bit misleading a de-evolution ray a d yes (laughs) de-evolution ray (laughs) every cartoon has some episode where it's the uh, you shirt the bird it turns into a pterosaur you gorillas (laughs) (laughs) yep this is kind of that actually this is an a, a study that found evidence of speciation reversal yeah. So this is a study by Anna Kearns et al. in Nature Communications. 
Speciation is the process very core to, to modern understanding of evolution of you have a species that splits. And the, the classic example is something like you have a, a population of species that live in a particular habitat and then something changes like a glacier, mm-hmm. you know, moves down the valley and it cuts the population in half. So now your species is in two different places and they gradually evolve until they are different species. Yeah, now that they're no longer able to interbreed. Yes. This found evidence that ravens did this and are now undoing it. That's so cool. Yes. So the common raven, Corvus corax, uh, smartest of all birds, (laughs) rare in these parts. (laughs) Today, there are three recognized lineages. So they're all classified as the same species, uh, but they're different branches of that mm-hmm, species mm-hmm. there the three lineages are the california and the chihuahuan lineage which are both found in the southwest united states one's very small and yippy <laughs> <laughs> and the holarctic which are found in north america europe and asia all over the northern hemisphere yeah, yeah, yeah. the understood relationship between these is that the holarctic is the nearest relative of the two southwestern U.S. lineages, mm-hmm. and the Chihuahuan and the Californian are sister to each other. Yeah. Right, so they're sister lineages, and then the, the whole Arctic is the cousin, basically. Mm-hmm. The two, California and Chihuahua, are closely related to each other, and then the next re- relative is the, the whole Arctic lineage. But this study sequenced about 400 birds' DNA and found a few things. First, they found that the split at the base of these three lineages happened over a million years ago, but that the California lineage and the Holarctic lineage have been hybridizing for tens of thousands of years. Interesting. So they were split for at least a million years and have recently started hybridizing to the point that what makes up the Holarctic lineage today is pure holarctic and hybrids and there is no longer any such thing as a pure california lineage of these ravens interesting yeah this is a branch that is in the process of being resorbed back Mm -hmm. into the larger population but the holarctic pure lineage and the hybrids are genetically more different from each other than most populations that are classified as different species among birds oh weird so that difference has apparently not included whatever barrier would have prevented them from reproducing and now they're recombining but the chihuahuan lineage which is closer to the californian lineage than to the holarctic lineage is not interbreeding with either of the other two (laughs) so if you imagine the tree split in two and then one of those branches split in two again, and one of the new branches is combining with the other one, and the third branch is off doing its own thing. See, just just the image I immediately got is the picture that they usually draw in time travel movies where they try to explain alternative timelines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. But you had a bunch of branches, and two of the branches are now coming back mm-hmm. together. And what they point out that's really interesting about this is obviously hybridization is a big deal. Yes. This, we know that our own species is hybridized mm-hmm. with others in the past. And 
it makes perfect sense when you're still closely related, that you're still mixing genetic material. Yeah. And it even makes perfect sense that you could interrupt speciation, right? Yeah. The, the glacier retreats before enough time has passed that your two populations have diverged completely. Yeah, you still recognize each other as similar enough that yep. your populations can just merge again. But this is an eight shown example now of two lineages that split enough for us to potentially consider them separate species mm -hmm. under you know once again species definition yep. stay tuned we'll yep. do a whole episode yep. about that someday yep. and now parts of them are coming back together reversing speciation and combining the stuff that they have gained separately back into one population and in, in such a unique way the fact that it's not the closest relatives is really interesting because it, it it begs the question of what's what's making this relative look more ideal than the other you know is there a behavioral thing that yeah. has come up that has made the the a courtship not able to happen or uh is there something else like that uh that's very interesting and and like you said it's happened with us you know hybridization is not a a not i want to say that it's not a rare thing but it's not like it's unheard of it's not like it's no, no. It happens with many species. There's, believe it or not, I, I have a, a crocodile uh, example to go <laughs> with this. What? You? I, it's uh, Cuban crocodiles and the American crocodile uh, mm -hmm. in Cuba, because uh, Cuban crocodiles are a very cool. They're probably my second favorite of all the crocodile species because they're the <laughs> most terrestrial and they're awesome. They can jump. And super awesome, but very, very uh, rare. They're endangered. They... They have very low numbers in Cuba due to habitat stuff, but also overhunting. Mm -hmm. But what they found is when they went to an, a crocodile farm, and they, they're mostly American crocodiles, which are true saltwater crocodiles, so they can swim you know, from South America to North America to Cuba. So they're all across that range. They found many of the American crocodiles in the Cuban crocodile farm were actually hybrids of Cuban crocs. Yeah or with Cuban Crocs, but retain most of the features. I would say hybridization is is actually extremely common mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. any lineages that are still kind of close yep. are going to do it. This is showing that that can have an effect potentially far beyond what we would have expected yeah. and is probably a very important factor in the evolution of various lineages over time it basically is an, an extra bullet point for yeah. us to keep in mind as we study evolutionary trajectories well it's because you mentioned us hybriding and i think it's often confusing for people how because you, you you'll hear and then we hybridized with neanderthals and outbred them which can often i think is often confusing or misleading yeah and the crocodile example and potentially this one but the crocodile example is a good one. They are actually terrified of this hybridization because if it continues, the Cuban crocs are just going to become more rare. The females keep choosing American over Cuban crocodiles. There will be no more, at least no Cuban crocodiles that look like Cuban crocodiles. Yeah. Well, that's what's happening with exactly. this raven lineage is they're basically vanishing into the, the larger lineage and, and so, contributing to it and creating a mixture. You know, it, it can be a form of extinction. Uh, yes, yes, it can. Which is, which is, and it's bizarre because it's one of those where your species goes extinct, but your genes continue on. Yes. Which is, it's weird. It's like, <laughs> did Neanderthals disappear or did we just become one? But there were more, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. It's cool. 
Yeah, so we'll have to keep an eye on this. They said that this is one of the things that they want to, basically what this study is to show, that this is a thing that happens and we should be keeping an Mm -hmm. eye out for it. It's just, like we've said before, whenever you realize something might be more common or pertinent, it gives you a new lens to look through. Absolutely. Speaking of of looking at uh, interesting and weird trends, uh, my next news source has to do with ankylosaurs and how they fall down. See, dinosaurs uh, is much more like it. See, we're back on course, everyone. And <laughs> it's we can, we can breathe sigh of relief. So ankylosaurs, the armored, club-tailed tank of dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, extremely famous. We had a news article about one of the, the best preserved, ever best preserved dinosaurs ever, the mummified mm-hmm. ankylosaur that was discovered not too long ago. And one of the weird things about this group is that it's very, it's a bit kind of common knowledge about those who study them that they fossilize upside down. Yeah. And it's, no one's quite been able to answer why. So Malin and their research team decided to take a look at it. And it's actually really interesting what they did because they kind of just looked at the standing hypotheses or potential answers that people have either kind of held or put forth and just kind of broke down where they make sense and where they don't make sense and tested where they could and yeah. came up with an answer. This has been published in P3, the paleogeography, paleoclimatology, paleoecology. Mm-hmm. And there's typically four major uh, uh, answers for why the ankylosaur rolls over when it's dying and yeah, yeah, four hypotheses. Hypotheses to test. And there, the first two are are kind of the the off the top of your head. The first things you think of first is mm-hmm. being that they roll down hills and die either due to the rolling or roll down after dying. They're very heavy animals, so if they die on a slope, they'll tumble. Right, right. They basically were able to write this off pretty quickly because if an animal were that clumsy, it probably wouldn't last a hundred million years. <laughs> it was kind of their answer was like, that's just not a viable way that that would be happening so often that it would become a trend and that animals that that happens so often to would be extremely successful. Like, yeah, yeah. That just, they couldn't find a, a stream of a thread of logic that made sense there. The other one that you will hear people talk about and that it was actually suggested for, uh, we mentioned glyptodons with our slots episode mm-hmm. and this was suggested for them as well. So it's not a, uh, odd idea but is that they're flipped by predators to get at the yes. soft gooey underbelly the nougat inside yeah, the yeah. ankylosaur shell and they said this doesn't really hold up because of the specimens they looked at which they looked at about 36 and found that 26 were on their back so there is some truth to this this mm-hmm. this paleo they were making sure it wasn't a paleontological wives tale yeah but like something like 70 percent are actually that's, fossilized upside down that's a that's a trend only one of them had bite marks of the ones they looked at. So these aren't all victims of predation. Yeah, yeah. So not likely that. The next one, which is interesting, that's something I hadn't heard of before, is flipped due to bloating like an armadillo. Yeah, it is said that armadillos do that. Yeah, so there's another common idea that armadillos die on their back. And the answer was that while they're on the side of the road and they begin to rot, their bellies bloat and they swell up like little balloons and they push them off their front and roll them onto their side, which continues them onto their back. 
Yeah. So after they die, the, after the, the they gases die. of decomposition yep. flip them over. And this is this has been a thing that's commonly said about them as roadkill. Colin McDonough and Jim Lowry found that this doesn't happen due to decomposition. They went and looked at a huge number of roadkill armadillos. They had a what they called their network of people calling mm-hmm. them as soon as they found dead armadillos so they could try to get to it before other things disturbed it. They did not find a trend of them being on their back. And they said that most of that position could be answered by predators or cars. And then they took the extra step of getting two dead armadillos, putting it in their backyard and putting them on their bellies and letting them rot, (laughs) which they said in their paper, they thanked their very understanding neighbors. Um, (laughs) But they did not find that they changed position due to a bloating belly. So there's no real... Oh, for three. Mm Mm-hmm. So the last one is one that we actually mentioned back in our gray fossil site episode, and it's bloat and float. Yeah. Yeah. So bloat and float is the idea that a carcass that ends up in water, whether they drowned in the water or whether they fell in the water after dying or whether they're washed into it. However, Mm -hmm. they end up in water while dead and while rotting. It is common that many animals swell due to the gases in their body from the buildup of decomposition. Being very top-heavy animals, the idea is that this swelling would cause them to be more, float better on their backs because their belly is now full of air and their back is full of armor. And they yeah, would, yeah, it would it would change the center of gravity yeah. and whatnot so that they flip over. And then they tip, and then as they, you know, finish rotting or as the gas finally released, they would sink back first into the silty bottoms. For this one, they used computers, which is uh, very cool. They make... I've heard of those. Yeah, I'm using one now, in fact, if you believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice up-and-coming methodology. Yeah. So they made a computerized model of an ankylosaur and the notosaurs, uh, the two Mm -hmm. main groups of this lineage, and were able to put them in in a floating physics engine and tested them both de-bloated and bloated to Mm -hmm. see how it worked with the notosaur i found this really interesting they found that they are extremely unstable when floating on upright Mm -hmm. it takes one degree tilted in either direction for them to flip wow so So like a cool breeze uh, yeah 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 if you sneeze (laughs) at them they are going (laughs) under uh so not likely swimmers even while alive (laughs) Um, yeah yeah wow so they said that was without bloating they just would boom they said the ankylosaurs were a little more stable, required a little more of a tilt, mm-hmm. but not an extreme amount. They suggested a wave could do it. Yeah, yeah. And so, and especially when bloated, the two of them definitely could flip like this. And this, so far, basically gives the best answer. And it's interesting. It's it's a it's a cool thing because even Malin uh, said to quote him, "It's pretty rare that the scientific method plays out so clearly in practice, but I think this is a nice case where it does." They're, yeah, he. They said. Here are the hypotheses. Mm-hmm. We're going to test them one by one and rule out the stuff that doesn't yeah. fit. And so once again, this is the one study on this. There could be more information to come, but so far it's the best answer we have on it. And it's the first time someone's really gone through and just tested all the potential answers to try yeah, to find yeah. which one stands above the rest, uh, which is interesting. And the famous mummified one was found in a uh, aquatic environment. Yeah. This is a really cool kind of study because it's always fun to see those studies that go, you know, this is kind of a, we say this all the time Mm -hmm. and it's not the kind of thing you might 
immediately think as a super scientifically interesting thing, but when they went and tested it, they found something really cool about the nature of these animals' bodies and how they're buried. This goes into a topic we've we've touched on here and there in the podcast, which is taphonomy, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the study of how things become buried and, yep. and what happens to something along the way and why do we find them in the particular ways that we do. Yeah, paleontology CSI. Yes. So this is this is a really cool kind of study. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a fun one. Speaking of aquatic things, one more bit of news. This one but, I chose this one. This this one's cheating a little bit because this actually came out several months ago, this <gasps> paper. But it's been reported on recently, so I saw it recently, and I wanted to talk about it because there's a cool sponge. Well, okay. I'm so, going to allow this. <laughs> <laughs> we're going back into the ocean. <laughs> this is using a particularly awesome type of sponge to study climate change in the past. Ooh. Here we go. Sponges make Krabby Patties. parts of their bodies called spicules out of silica and usually spicules are these little microscopic structures that that are built along the body of the sponge and what's interesting about silica is that silica is used by lots of microscopic organisms if you'll recall episode 22 on Mm. micropaleontology particularly things like diatoms which not only take up silica from the ocean but take out carbon dioxide from the air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they're a huge force in the recycling of carbon through the atmosphere into the ocean and back out again. And that has major implications for climate mm-hmm. shifts over time. So by studying silica as an example of a bit of ocean chemistry that you can track to get an idea of how your carbon cycle was shifting, to get an idea of how your climate was shifting. But it's rare to get a consistent record of silica. Yeah. It's hard to get it like consistently through time. Fortunately, there is an awesome sponge. This sponge is called Monorathus chunai. It lives in the Pacific Ocean. They can live for thousands of years. <laughs> nice. Building their spicule. Unlike most sponges that make little tiny microscopic spicules, this species of sponge creates a single spicule that can grow to three meters. Wow. So this is like a spine. It's a spine made out of silica mm-hmm. that can be huge. Up to three meters long. For you Americans, that's 10 feet. That's crazy. Huge. And like tree rings, it is constantly building and recording the chemistry of the ocean mm-hmm. at the time it it took up that silica. So this study by Klaus Jochum or Jochum et al. in Geophysical Research Letters looked at a handful of sponges ranging from 5,000 to 18,000 years old, not fossilized, just their structure has been growing for that long. Wow. As they built their silica structure. And what they found were interesting fluctuations in silica over time one of the notable results that they came across was that dissolved silica in the ocean at the early deglacial so around the time we were pulling out of the last glacial period Mm -hmm. was significantly higher than it is today which they say suggests either that there was a different relationship between continental minerals coming into the ocean Mm -hmm. that there was more coming in or there were less diatoms 
becoming buried and sinking down to the bottom and donating silica down to the deep ocean at that time. Interesting. Either one of those has interesting implications for the global carbon budget. Mm -hmm. So this is essentially an underwater tree ring source for following ocean chemistry over thousands of years. That's awesome. Like that that's a huge new source of information. Yeah. That can re I mean and it's like you said finding a consistent record cuz it's it's one thing to be able to look back and get a glimpse at a point in time going oh well, looking at the diatoms here it looks like things were a little higher, a little lower, you know, slightly different, but being able to see a path and a pattern is a huge deal because it lets you you know find trends and patterns throughout history and also look for causes and effects consistently which is very cool and it's all because of a particularly awesome type of animal that we still have living today which is a pretty cool thing yeah that's awesome huge sponge cool indeed and there is the news which means it is time to talk about the main event haha so as you heard earlier, today's episode is all about coprolites, poop. prehistoric poop. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a fun hour, everybody. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to show our true level of maturity. <laughs> this is the 12-year-old episode. Yep. So let's start with some terms. Let's define what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Coprolites, which is a, a word that means dungstone. I like it. Are trace fossils. So trace fossils are the things that an organism leaves behind that are not actually part of its body. Yeah. Right? Footprints, uh, eggs, things like that. Imprints. All those, yeah. Now, coprolite, most commonly when you hear coprolite, you're talking about poop. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen some places that will use coprolite also to refer to intestinal contents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before they've left the body. Other times you'll hear those called cololites for things that are found while still inside the gut contents of the body. Not to be confused with gastrolites, which are specifically things in the stomach, which are not to be confused with gastroliths, which are mineral things in the stomach. Yeah. I've also seen bromolite used to describe all of these things, just any sort of fossilized digestive material. Interesting. Sometimes you'll see the word paleofeces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which seems to be more of an archaeological term for very young fossil poo. Mm-hmm. In today's episode, to keep things simple, we're just going to re- refer to all fossilized poop as coprolites. Yep. Now, coprolites are pretty rare mm-hmm. uh, compared to, to, to body fossils, bones and teeth and stuff. Poop does not stick around very long in the environment. No. It can get stepped on, it can get eaten, it can decay. It's fertilizer, so. Yeah, it's getting used up by other stuff. Your your poop doesn't stick around too long. No. It is most common in places that are very cold or very arid. Those are great places for preserving things like that a little longer. Yeah. But otherwise, they become fossilized the same way pretty much anything becomes fossilized. Minerals get in there and gradually record and cement the shape until it is rock. Yeah. Like bones and teeth. And today, coprolites are extremely common uh, study material for people trying to understand the past. 
because you can learn a lot from poop. Absolutely. I had a a teacher in college, one of my biology professors, who would say that biology is all about sex and poop. So we're going to study half of that. <laughs> we're studying half. The sex episode is coming up. <laughs> common descent after dark. <laughs> we can. There's actually a there is a podcast called Paleo After Dark, which is yes. not about sex, but it is by I think drunk people. So <laughs> you can check that out if you want. Let's go into a little bit of history on copper lights because I think that this is actually really cool. So the word copper light was coined in 1829 by Reverend William Buckland, mm-hmm. who is famous for a number of things in early paleontology, actually. Uh, among the things that the, the good reverend is famous for is naming and describing Megalosaurus, the first oh, described right. dinosaur. Yes. Yeah. This also means that coprolite, the word coprolite, has been around longer than the word dinosaur. <laughs> it was named uh, more than 10 years before the word dinosaur was coined. That's fantastic. Buckland identified hyena droppings in Spanish caves by comparing them to modern hyenas. Mm-hmm. And he identified the what were called bezoar stones and what yes. some people thought were fossil fir cones in the Lyme Regis area where Mary Anning was digging up ichthyosaurs. Yeah. He identified those as ichthyosaur coprolites. They were full of fish bones and teeth and scales and stuff. Oh, that's so cool. And this guy apparently fell in love with coprolites. <laughs> How could you not? I'm going to quote from the Naturalis Historia blog where I found this comment. Quote, Buckland was so enamored with the beauty of coprolites and what they could tell us about past life that he had a table with thin sliced fish coprolites embedded in its surface. It is said that he had guests eat at the table prior to telling them about the origins of the rock upon which they had just eaten. That's, yep. That's End the, quote. I love it because that is exactly how you present coprolites to that me. Is, that is a paleontologist if ever I've heard of one. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we used to do it at yep. the Gray site. Now here, look at this. Hold it in your hand. You go ahead and look at it. Do you know yep. what it is? Any guesses? All right. <laughs> It's poop. You're holding it's, poop. It's poop. You had one or two reactions. <laughs> yep. We would do it when they were digging through the Aurora stuff. Yep. And I'd always put it back in their hand first. And then mm-hmm. like four out of five times, they'd throw it back in the tray. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you have those few kids that go, cool. Yeah. The, yeah. The future paleontologists. Yep, the ones who get it. <laughs> Another early paleo type person who got into copper lights was Edward Hitchcock who was a bit famous for his work on trace fossils, he has been quoted as saying, and I like this, I wanted to put this in here, truly this may be called a scientific miracle, a resurrection from the dead, and among the many analogous miracles wrought in the 19th century, I know scarcely any more marvelous than this. End quote. Nice. And what I like about that is it really captures the sense of a person who has just discovered that poop can fossilize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we kind of take it for granted now because it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. But no, what an incredible thing to be able to find the scat from super ancient times. Absolutely. It's it's one of those things where if, you know, if I did not already know it existed, I would take convincing. Like, the first time I heard about it, I was like, I assumed that it was a misidentification at like, the rock <laughs> store because it was just some rock shop. 
And they were yeah. like, fossil poop. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, And whatever. then I learned about it. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh, there's also a poem devoted to coprolites, which I'll put in the, the, the I'll put all these in the, the blog post. Uh, the first half of the poem is, approach, approach, ingenuous youth, and learn the fundamental truth. The noble science of geology is founded firmly in coprology. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of appreciation back in the early 1800s for ode to a turd for turds <laughs> and actually in england uh starting in the 1840s or so coprolites became the 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 target of intense mining efforts mm-hmm. because coprolites especially carnivore coprolites tend to be full of phosphate Right, right, right. Which is good for fertilizers. So they yeah. would, especially the late, the turn of that century, there was a huge industry collecting and grinding up coprolites to make uh, for fertilizer. Interesting. Sad, but interesting. Yes. Uh, before we talk about sort of what the study of coprolites entails, we have to ask the big question, which mm-hmm. is, how do you know a poop? When you see one, yeah. I'm really glad I have this pop filter. <laughs> There's lots of peas in here. <laughs> a lot of peas. Hopefully the, the pop filter is catching them. <laughs> Identification of copper lights can actually be really tough. Mm-hmm, they because they don't smell anymore. They don't smell. Well, eh, <laughs> hold on. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, in general, it's a, it's a lumpy rock, which can be very difficult to differentiate from other lumpy rocks. Yeah. In general, when you when you want to identify a coprolite, there's a few ways you can go about it. Morphology helps sometimes, mm-hmm. right? The shape, it'll look like a turd. Yep. Contents are a big clue. You have, right, if there's plants and bones and stuff inside of it, that's a good clue. Yeah, you don't get those just wrapped up in rocks randomly. Yep. Uh, chemistry can be helpful. Like I said, they're ty- typically they're high in phosphate. Uh, and in calcium, which especially in carnivores, because that's what you get when you dissolve bone yep. in digestive fluids. So usually you can get some of those, you know, some combination of those will help you identify coprolite from rock. Now, when I was studying this episode, when I was preparing, I decided to make a phone call mm-hmm. to one of my personal favorite poo researchers, <laughs> Dr. Jim Mead. Yep. Who is currently at the Mammoth site. Uh, Jim has been studying dung for a long, long time. Jim's corroborated all that stuff I just said. He also pointed out, and he works with very young turds, uh, and I don't just mean his students, (laughs) of which I was one, hey-o, but (laughs) out in the West, (laughs) he said that if you, in some cases, because they're made of organic material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plants or or organics from inside of the body they came from that those volatile compounds carry a smell it might not be a poop smell but yeah uh, he claims that sometimes he can pick up these turds and give him a sniff and get a clue that he might be holding a copper light because it smells like organic stuff yeah it has it has a organic versus just mineral uh, yeah, he said if you add water, it makes it that much more noticeable. That's it, ain't that the truth? Uh, <laughs> it's at least he's doing that, and not what all the classic movie trackers do of taking you know, taking that that little taste. Ah, this little taste. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm sure right. they taste like organics. They went this way. Uh. <laughs> the much more difficult question 
once you have a copper light, is assigning the poop to a pooper. Yeah. That's really tough. Yes. Uh, partially because there's a lot of variation, right? As I'm sure our listeners all have experience, mm-hmm. not all poops are the same. Not all poops are equal. But there's also a lot of overlap between different creatures. Mm-hmm. It's a really good point because at the aquarium, we actually have an activity called the scoop on poop where we <laughs> identify fake rubber poops to the animals they go with and talk about why they're the shape they are because they're omnivore, because they're a carnivore, blah, 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 blah. But one of my favorite ones is we have rabbit and squirrel poop. And I always ask, does anyone know what other animal has? It's like little pellets, like little jelly beans. And I always ask, does anyone else know what kind of animal has a poop like this? You know, and and I'll give them the, especially if you're a hunter, and usually someone will pipe up deer poop. Yeah. That's, that's a very small animal, and a very big animal. And if you put all those turds next to each other, you would not be able to sort them. Yeah. At least not without any difficulty. And so it's, you know, and especially when you have uh, fossilized animals and you no longer have the shape of their butt, you can't can't necessarily match it easy. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, it can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some tricks. Uh, sometimes the shape can help you, mm-hmm. right? Size and shape can be a big clue. Obviously, a big pooper makes a big poop. Yep. Small poopers make small poops. Some creatures do have characteristically shaped turds. Uh, Some fish, sharks and lungfish, for example, have an intestinal structure that results in spiral-shaped poops. Yeah. Which are super easy to identify. Wombats have famously cubic poops. Yes, yes. (laughs) So there is some morphology you can go with. Uh, The contents can be a big clue. Right? Carnivore versus mm-hmm. herbivore. It can help you narrow it down. But probably the biggest clue that you're usually going to find is where was it found and what was nearby? Yes. Proximity. What habitat? Was it in the marine habitat? Was it in a terrestrial habitat? And what else lived there? Yeah. A famous example was the case of Aden Crater, New Mexico. There is a fissure in the ground, and inside this large fissure, was fossilized lots of big herbivore coprolites mm-hmm. and the fossil remains of one ground sloth. There you go. That had apparently fallen in and survived <laughs> just long enough to leave some presents. Mm-hmm. And this was helpful because it helped us to understand what sloth poop looks like. Yeah. So my, my immediate idea was that this, this fissure was his outhouse. <laughs> <laughs> it was for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Not by choice. This is a, his last outhouse. Another really cool example came out of... This is a study by Chin et al. 1998. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chin, by the way, is Karen Chin, the coprolite queen. (laughs) A very, very famous researcher of coprolites. Nice. She and colleagues were working in latest Cretaceous Saskatchewan and found what they call, in their paper, a king-sized coprolite. (laughs) <laughs> it is 44 centimeters long which is a foot and a half full of bone fragments nice and they describe there is only one carnivore known from latest cretaceous saskatchewan that could have possibly left a foot and a half long turd and that's tyrannosaurus that's fantastic uh, another fun story came from jim when i was talking with jim good old dr mead he said that uh, he told me one one case of uh, digging in a, a site uh, out west, I assume, and he described 
a bowling ball rolling out of the wall <laughs> that they identified as mammoth. Because <laughs> it's huge. And yeah. what else? And actually, it was full, according to him, it was full of poorly digested grass and twigs. Yep. From a grazing type animal mm-hmm. that's just scooping stuff up. Actually, because this is Jim, and you get fun comments like this when you talk to Jim, <laughs> because it was full of undigested grass and twigs, he and his colleagues referred to it as a screamer. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was going to make a joke. I was going to make something like, you know, nope, that the, was more, there. the more of these you find, you start feeling bad for the animals. <laughs> like, ooh, mm, ah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That was a bad oh, day. Yeah. That's what this fossilized was a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot of the time, one or more of these is, you know, one of these isn't great. So you want as many pieces mm-hmm. of evidence as you can. And when you read studies about coprolites, you'll usually find it was associated with a bunch of dinosaurs. It contained this. It was about the right size. If you're working with young fossils, you can also get DNA. Mm-hmm. And the DNA will contain, now you have to be careful because it will contain the things that it ate. Yeah. Uh, but it will also contain the DNA of the turd maker. Yeah. Once you are capable of identifying your poop and who pooped it, you're in luck because coprolites come in a huge diversity. Yeah. All shapes and sizes. And if I may quote Gomi 1993... Everybody poops. (laughs) There is a guy in Florida who has a world record setting private collection of coprolites. uh, George Franson, who has turned them into an Mm -hmm. online database that he calls the Pooseum. Because, yeah, naturally. Yeah, yeah, there's only one name for it. (laughs) And among his collection is a fossil coprolite called Precious which is a 20 centimeter long putatively crocodilian poo. How many, how many curics? <laughs> <laughs> and also petrified wood full of tiny, tiny, tiny termite poops. Yes. And when I asked on Twitter for examples of coprolites, the Twitter account Fossil Locator, who's a cool person, sent images of squiggly ammonite poop. Oh, weird. Yeah. So I'll throw those in the in the blog post. So there is a huge diversity of coprolites to be found in the fossil record. Huzzah for crock poop. Because that was something when I first <laughs> learned about coprolites, I wondered how many of those we'd find or were found because alligators often have very powdery poops because mm-hmm. it's full of digested bone and teeth and stuff. So you also have to worry about stuff like that where not all animals have really solid, like snakes don't always have... Oh, yeah. Solid poops. A lot of times it's just, it's like an oil slick. It's just like, and it's just disgusting. (laughs) I was reading some of the descriptions. Like, we were talking about taphonomy before with Mm -hmm. the ankylosaurs. What happened to this creature? Yes. There are some fantastic descriptions of geologists and paleontologists interpreting what happened to the poop. (laughs) Like, this, this poop clearly split after it was pooped. And there was one paper that I read that said that they one of their clues that it was pooped in a marine environment was that if it had been pooped on land, it would have a flattened side. <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, poop CSI is 
awesome to read. That poop, that poop <laughs> got to travel the seas. <laughs> it was the message in a bottle. Yeah. So yeah, you're, and it's funny because poop is familiar. So mm-hmm. you're looking at very familiar. You know, a uh, uh, copper lights will often taper on one end. Yep. Because of course they do. Because that's what poops look like. Because a sphincter. Uh, Jim described another bunch of fossils that he found with colleagues that came from extinct shrub ox that they came to call them Hershey Kisses. Yeah. Because of the way that the turds were shaped. That's that's, if you watch the making of for things like chocolate things, that's what it looks like. Oh, oh, Um, yes, it is. Yes. (laughs) Kisses in quotation marks. It looks like they're kissing the conveyor belt. Yeah, yeah. Kissing the conveyor belt. That's what it looks like. Uh... (laughs) You just keep Nobody us. would buy it if you had called it the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's the other thing I really like about these is that it makes fossil animals like you said, it's it's familiar. It makes them recognizable. You know, we talked about that with the the dinosaur episode, that often it gets misconstrued or it's just easy to kind of forget that dinosaurs were just animals. Yeah. They're animals that are a lot of people's favorite animal that's now gone. Mm-hmm. But they were just animals. They were just a cool group. And I think the fact of, it's like, yeah, T-Rex pooped too. Really just, oh yeah, it was just an animal. Oh you yeah. Know, it Absolutely. wasn't some crazy monster. Yeah, just ate, it pooped. And so yeah, it's just like us. <laughs> it's very humanizing. In yes, a way, yes. To use an anthropocentric term. I was about to say, it's, it's you know. T-Rex everybody... put his pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Does a T-Rex squat in the woods? You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason of course that people get excited about poop is the same i mean people get excited about fossil poop the same reason they get excited about modern poop mm-hmm. you can learn a ton by looking at poop it's extremely important and we're going to go through some examples the rest of this episode is going to be me reading cool examples of copyright yes. i think to start probably the most obvious thing that you can learn from poo from the past is diet find a poop that will tell you what that thing was eating tells you when it went in the other end yes it can also tell you where it was eating mm-hmm. and where in a habitat was it getting its its food uh there was an example that i came across of a shark coprolite that had freshwater turtle in it <laughs> nice which this was a shark that was feeding in freshwater nice or near freshwater yeah yeah there, of course, there was the, uh, we brought up a coprolite study in the news not too long ago. Mm-hmm. You brought it up, actually. Yeah. Uh, another Karen Chin study of hadrosaur droppings with crustacean remains in them. Yeah. Which was a big surprise. It's one of those where you find out, oh, eating something we didn't expect. And there'd been yeah. no way to know that by looking at the teeth. Speaking of eating things you didn't expect, I found another example of human coprolites which are very mm-hmm. popular in archaeology studies, from Colorado about 1,000 years ago that were found in 2000, the year 2000, to contain myoglobin, which is interesting because humans produce myoglobin in our muscles, but we don't typically poop out our own myoglobin. Mm-hmm. These humans were pooping out myoglobin because they were getting myoglobin from somebody else. (laughs) So this was coprolite evidence of cannibalism. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But what's even more interesting than that is what you can learn about how animals were eating. Mm -hmm. So 
going back to the king-sized coprolite from Saskatchewan, the big tyrannosaur coprolite, one of the things that they noticed about that that really stuck out, so to speak, was that it was full of bone fragments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this told them two things. One, some people had proposed that dinosaur, big theropod dinosaurs, were possibly digesting bone the way that crocs do. Yeah, absolutely. This was suggested that at least one tyrannosaur wasn't. Yep, that they were right? still crunching through bone, yep. but not handling it fully. And the other thing was that the way the fragments were broken suggested that they were broken before digestion. Yep. And that was an early bit of evidence that tyrannosaurs were bone crunchers. That's really cool. That evidence came from the poops. Mm-hmm. Uh, archaeologists will also track human poos through time mm-hmm. because we st- different things will start showing up in our poo as we developed different food harvesting technologies. Yeah. That as we got the ability to harvest the roots of this plant, mm-hmm. or this, we domesticated this animal. We start can... seeing spearheads, and then mammoths. <laughs> mammoth shows up in our poop. <laughs> yeah. Or one example that I found was that there is a certain plant. I forget what plant it was, but the different types of the plant, different parts of the plant, require different harvesting technologies. Oh, right, right, right. Interesting. So when those parts of the plant start showing up in your poo you know that humans had developed the ability to get that food. Mm-hmm. There was another... St- Actually, this was uh, Jim's study on the shrub ox, the Hershey Kiss poops yep. from the Colorado Plateau. This this I thought was really cool. The paper said that they were finding spring and fall pollen in the poop, which suggested that the shrub ox were living in the same place all year round. Yeah. What a cool finding from poop. That's really cool. It can tell you migratory paths and... <laughs> yeah that's, absolutely that's it's it's those things that you don't think about but everything that you eat is going to affect your poop and the type of digestive system you have and yep. you know all of your metabolism will also you know it's it's one of those things that'd be hard for us to tell but the animals have different rates of pooping yeah you know, birds poop more than others <laughs> <laughs> and they tell you stuff about how you were eating, which mm-hmm. is really cool, and when and where cool. you were eating. Another very recent example, this is actually 2018, there was a study by Boast et al. on the coprolites of moa and kakapo in New Zealand. These are mm-hmm. The moas are the big flightless birds, and the kakapo are the small flightless birds. <laughs> From fairly recent, because they only went extinct fairly recently, they sampled the DNA of the plants and fungi and stuff in the poop and found that the different species were eating different fungi and plants, suggesting that they were foraging in different habitats and suggesting that they were major dispersers of a number of plants and fungi. Very cool. So the poop gave them a sense of where these different birds fit into that ecosystem and what it means now that they are gone. Yeah, very cool. All sorts of cool stuff. One other thing. Oh, actually, a thing that I forgot to mention about archaeologists will also look for evidence of medicinal plants. Yeah, 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 absolutely. When did we start using plants for medicinal purposes? Well, that's that's something that is extremely... And 
you know, it's it's common even with us. There's a reason stool samples are a thing is it's a great indicator of health. Yes. And so if you're able to find trends in a, a single animal's, you know, single kind of animal's poops, you might be able to tell health. We, you know, at the aquarium, that is actually one of the tests before an animal is allowed in with the rest of the animals if it's new to the aquarium. It has to have check three, three clean fecals with no parasites <laughs> and nothing that they can transmit. And so you gotta, uh, there's a, there's a scrub song from the show Scrubs. <laughs> Everything, oh, it yes, all comes down was. to poop. Yes, there was. <laughs> well, maybe we'll find that for the blog post. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's it can tell you a ridiculous amount. One other fun diet example. This is this is really cool. Uh, I had a conversation not too long ago with Stephen Godfrey. Uh, he published a paper in 2010 of a coprolite that is possibly crocodilian mm. from the Miocene of Maryland. That had these unusual impressions in it, and he and his colleague were wondering what made those impressions in the poop. So they got silicone rubber mm-hmm. and filled in the impressions, and then when it hardened, they pulled them out, and they had perfect little casts yeah. of the impressions, and the little casts were wonderful little replicas of shark teeth. Nice. They had found a poop that had gotten bitten by a tiger shark. <laughs> And what's super cool is they were wondering why a shark would bite a poop. Because well, sharks get all sorts of stuff in their mouth. Uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, that a thing ended up in a shark's mouth is not <laughs> breaking news. No, no. But the poop, the, the marks were only on one side of the poop, which struck them as very odd because if a shark bit something, you'd expect that it would, but you know, to make marks, you need to bite it. Yeah, and biting you have to requires put pressure. both sides. So they suggested that a possible explanation for this would be if this poop was still in the body of the shark's prey yep. when it bit through it. Yep. Now, that's really hard to show definitively. Yep. But what a cool possibility that you could, like, what a wonderful little story Absolutely. that this shark-bitten coprolite tells us. And it's, and I, you know, if any shark can be biting through things, tiger sharks, it's literally what they're designed to do. <laughs> yeah. There have been a couple other, there was the, uh, Godfrey also described a coprolite that was apparently bitten by a gar, another <laughs> type of fish. And then there was one that came out of the Puseum collection recently that appears to have been also bitten by a coprolite, uh, by a, by a shark. So there's nice. a lot of cool, there's a lot of cool diet related poops. Another fascinating av- avenue of questions you can ask about poops is ecology mm-hmm. in the sense of what was around. Yeah. Right. When you find a poo, that tells you what was, you know, it's like finding footprints. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't always necessarily have the body of a creature, but if you can assign the poop to the creature, now you, all right, there you go. You don't need to find the skeleton of it. Yeah. That's, we do that in modern uh, animal surveying. Yes. That's what the Boy Scouts are learning to do. Yep. If you find a bear turd, you know they're at least close enough by. Yep. If it's steaming, you run. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> a really cool example of this. Now, I, I will preface by saying this has been highly questioned. Mm-hmm. But there, there's, uh, there are coprolites that were discovered in caves in Oregon that have been identified as human based on the DNA and, and, and based on the association and all that. Mm-hmm. If this is true, they have been dated to just over 14,000 years, which would make them the oldest direct evidence of humans in north america 
Oh. Now, again, the identity of the Coprolites and the dating have both been called into question. Yep. But if they're right, then the the oldest evidence for humans in the continent would be poof. <laughs> I feel like that's incredibly poignant. <laughs> <laughs> we found a new conf- continent, boys. What are we going to do? <laughs> Mine. <laughs> yes, yes. I claim this continent in in the year 1492. Famously, Columbus and his sailors claimed the North American continent, only to discover that there was already human poop all over it. Oh, <laughs> they claimed it first, guys. Back on the boats. But another avenue that you can explore poop for discovering who and what was around. Even better than identifying the poop, the the pooper, is identifying what's in the poop. Mm -hmm. For example, there was a study not too long ago that looked at sauropod coprolites in India and found phytoliths, which are little structures that grass creates, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that belonged to at least five different species of grass, which was cool because we didn't think that grass was that diverse back then. Yeah. So the evidence in the poop showed us clues to plant evolution that we hadn't realized before. The truth is in the turd. Another really cool example, and thank you to Kelsey, who suggested this on Twitter, uh, poops from the early Triassic of South Africa uh, that were found by some, some sort of vertebrate animal that left poops behind had little freshwater bivalves in it oh, that nice. apparently this creature had eaten or had gotten in the poop somehow, which is really cool made that much cooler by the fact that these are the first freshwater bivalves discovered in the early Triassic. That's awesome. And this paper described, and I love this, I love this wording, demonstrates the importance of coprolites as micro-environments of exceptional preservation. That was what I was about to say. Is it One of the things it does is it transports things to a new, new situation and ecosystem or environment that they may yep. not... Tip, you know, their their normal environment may not be prone to fossilization, but pooping you on the ground might give you a better chance. Yeah, so a poop can preserve stuff we wouldn't find otherwise. Yeah. Which is really, really cool. That's awesome. So you can discover evidence of ancient creatures being around that pooed the poo, that were pooed in the poo, <laughs> and then... It gets better. Another another Karen Chin study that I'm staring at at the moment. This is one of a number of studies, but this is sort of the famous one. We're looking at dinosaur feces from Montana, late Cretaceous, probably ornithopod, uh, mm-hmm. which are big the duckbill dinosaurs, because there are Myasaura bone beds nearby. All right, and these yeah, were yeah, big, yeah. and they were full of plant material, so it makes sense that they would be the big dinosaur poops. Inside the poop, some of which were patties these were dinosaur patties that they were described as it's ornithopod chips ornithopod chips inside the poops they found not only the plants that the dinosaurs were eating but all sorts of tunnels yes left behind by dung beetles yes i was so hoping we would get to this yes by multiple cretaceous species of dung beetles that did not themselves fossilized but left little trackways in dinosaur poop that's so cool that that practice has been going on that long. Yeah, and that was the big finding here, mm-hmm. is we have an evolutionary record of dung beetles through coprolites. Yeah, and it's and it's really cool. And that's something, 
all the things that are cool about fossil poop is also cool about modern poop. Uh, yes. Our friend Josh Doby, who specializes in in beetles and bugs and small critters, yeah, was once telling me he has a huge insect collection, and he was once telling me the amount of different insects that y- utilize a single cow dropping. Oh yeah, and the way he described it, and I love this, and I would absolutely watch a documentary focusing on this is if any of you have ever heard of a whale fall it's when a whale dies on the ocean floor i believe we've covered it yep. before or mentioned yep. it before and the the thing about it is that different creatures make it to it at different points the mm-hmm. specialized scavenging creatures usually make it there first because they are actively looking for and smelling for signs of a carcass yeah and so they are there are their whole uh, uh morphology is geared toward that whilst then you get other predators and more vague scavengers coming in as they happen upon it. And the dung is the same thing you were saying where there are flies who usually show up first that mm-hmm. are able to fly there first. And then you get dung beetles and you have ones that work at the top layer, ones that look in the mid layer, ones that look at the bottom and ones that take some of it. Some yeah. stay there and nest. The, and it's like really, really complex. And we just never think to look down at it. <laughs> and it's really interesting stuff. I, I like that you said that because I found a study that was looking at exactly that in fossil poo. Yes. So you can find... So so uh, we've talked about this before, that trace fossils get their own names. Yes. Just like we give scientific names to, to species. Coprinisphera is the dung beetle brood ball. Nice. As a fossil, as a coprolite. These go all the way back to the Jurassic... And I found one study that was looking at uh, Coprinosphera from the Eocene through the Miocene down in South America and looking at the traces within traces. <laughs> so the insect tracks inside the poop. That's and so great. <laughs> they not only were finding, obviously, these are dung beetle balls and mm-hmm. dung beetles will use these sometimes to brood their young. Inside the poops, they found the tracks from the dung beetle larvae from all sorts of insects and worms and stuff that also use the poop for food <laughs> from the parasites that fed off of the dung beetle larvae. <laughs> so, oh, there's a whole little ecosystem. Yeah, preserved in world. Burrows and stuff. That's in these ancient dung beetle balls. How cool. And so these are those, those, the dung beetles that roll up the ball and then backwards walk it back to their nest. And so they've been doing that <laughs> this long, which is awesome. And it's been yes. complex. Like, it's it's not just that, you know, there were already parasites and other animals taking advantage of these habits. So it's like, it's it's a complex behavior that does that developed a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine that as long as there has been poop, Someone's there have been, been using coprophages, mm-hmm. creatures that eat it, creatures that use it. I feel like that's Absolutely. A, a really underused potential insult for people. You uh, coprophage. You coprophage. <laughs> <laughs> we do not condone calling people names nope, that imply nope. that they eat poop. If any of you use that and you get in trouble with your parents, we deny that we said it. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of finding evidence of other creatures associated with poop, and we've hinted at this a little bit, there is another thing you can study in dung. There is a study, a particular study I want to draw attention to in PLOS One, Densine Diaz et al. 2013, we're looking at Permian shark coprolites, spiral-shaped <laughs> shark coprolites. Inside the shark coprolites, they found almost a hundred small ovals that were 
one to two tenths of a millimeter long. Wow. That they identified as tapeworm eggs. What? And these are the earliest evidence of tapeworms parasitizing vertebrate animals. That's fantastic. You can get an evolutionary history of parasites. Mm -hmm. The things that the animal didn't want in its body but got in there anyway. And a lot of those parasites, like the tapeworm here, they use droppings they use poops to transmit the next generation to get it out of the body yep. into a new one so any any digestive parasites are going to end up in the poop any parasites that use poop to transport themselves which it's an easy way out of the body so many mm-hmm. of them do mm-hmm. there have been studies that have found protist and worm parasites in dinosaur coprolites there is at least one study that found pinworm eggs in a Early Triassic Cynodont, which is a mammalian (laughs) ancestor. So there's all sorts of cool bits and pieces we get of the parasite fossil record. And you hinted at this before, and I almost had to stop you because you were getting ahead of me. I I wanted to dramatically unveil it. Archaeologists will study the history of infectious disease. Yes. By looking at human poops and fossil sites. Yeah. So as we all know, when you got a stomach ache, it often has to come out one end or the other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it shows in the, well, it's like uh, you you made the the perfect comparison, which is when you go to the doctor with an internal problem, a lot of the time they'll all right, well, let's see some poo. Yep, give me give me a, give me some of your poo. I want something straight from the source. Yep, yep, right from the horse's mouth, except the other yep. end. I want what used to be in the horse's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> i watched how they take samples from animals and they literally have it's like a q-tip but instead of the fuzzy end of the q-tip it's wider and just has a little hole in the middle so they just stick in and twist and it captures it in that little hole and i was fascinated because i didn't know how they did it but also i was like that was really efficient <laughs> that was a that's that was really well done <laughs> you're good at this it was that is one one benefit of being a paleontologist is that the, the poo's already out. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we already. Yeah. We don't have to worry about reaching inside and checking the dinosaurs' uh, 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 droppings. Dropping. Droppings. That is one sure big pile. Of, so there was another study that actually <laughs> I, I came was out so close earlier, <laughs> very recently, which was about moas. This was related to that same moa study I mentioned before, that found not uh, not only the the different plants and stuff that they were eating but that there were parasites that were unique to the moas. Mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. when the moas went extinct, so did a bunch of the parasites that relied on them. Yeah. So it's really hard to get a fossil record of tiny little wormy things that live inside the bodies of other animals or protists and things like that. Bacteria. Yeah. Soft body animal in the soft tissue. You know, so it's, it's yes. doubly two levels of hard to fossilize. So coprolites, in this case with the moas, it was the, the they found the evidence of a parasite extinction. Nice, and that's fast. That's another subject to talk about. Is that absolutely every time you lose a species, you also lose all the things that depended on that species. Mm-hmm. So the the lice episode of South Park, where it's you know there's a lot of parasites. That, that's the only place they live. Yep. <laughs> so. All sorts of fascinating things you can find in super ancient turds. 
as we as that that other paper mentioned, they are exceptional preservation. Mm-hmm. They, they are exe- mm-hmm. cases of exceptional preservation. They are often really good for finding ancient DNA. Uh, coprolites are also a really great place to do carbon date. Yeah. Because they're full of organic material. So they tend to be a really great source of radiocarbon dating. There was a study, uh, believe it or not, this was by Karen Chin et al. Back in 2003, that was looking at another big carnivore coprolite that found fossilized soft tissue inside the coprolite. Nice. So muscle cells, connective tissue, stuff like that. So this is a whole, like, this is a, you know, it's funny because this episode is sort of framed as we're looking at a certain narrow type of fossil, but what this really is is an entire field of paleontology. That's like when we did micropaleontology where that is focusing on things under a certain size, but that has so many implications depending on what you're looking at and where it is. And same thing here. Yes, they're all turds. But every single one is from a different individual and a different animal. So every single one can have a slightly different story and probably does. Absolutely. Yeah, so you get dietary information. You get information on the environment, information on the parasites, information Mm -hmm. on what happened to the thing that pooped, information that happened to the things that got pooped. What happened to the poo? What mm-hmm. other things were interacting with the poo? Like, it's a whole little habitat. Yeah, and it's and it's it's one of those because you said it's it's very particular fossilization uh, uh, requirements and conditions that create a coprolite, but we still have a bunch of them because, as has been stated already, everybody poops. So and they're everywhere. There's no lack of poop. In the world. Yes. Even if only a small portion, (laughs) small percentage fossilized, you're still going to get a lot. (laughs) Absolutely. And this, I have, this was an interesting episode to plan because basically, like I said, that was just case studies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. over and over and over again, because that's the coolest way to (laughs) learn learn about this is to see how people have studied it. So in the blog post, I'll just include a big old list of here's a bunch that I found. I yeah. know I'm missing a ton. There's tons of coprolite studies. One other thing that I wanted to mention in this episode, because we have time and because it's super fun. <laughs> uh, poop's not the only thing that comes out of animals. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of cases of other fossilized forms of excrement. <laughs> and I just want to talk about them a little bit. <laughs> all right i mean this is the episode to do it one that is actually very famous uh you can get fossilized remains that come out the other end of an animal yep vomit uh particularly bird pellets yeah owl pellets are kind of they're kind of a coprolite that's cheating because they don't go all the way through that they cough them back up they lack commitment (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) and they don't follow through (laughs) and listen to that baseball coach (laughs) (laughs) One of the really cool things about owl pellets or other bird pellets is that here's an animal that travels around its environment, collects creatures in its belly, and then coughs their bones up in one place. Yep. There's a reason you dissect them in class. Yeah. They tell you what was around that area. Mm -hmm. Another very similar case is with pack rat mittens. Yeah. 
pack rats make little nests that are composed largely of their poop and stuff they find mm-hmm. seeds and and nuts and bones and utensils yep they're real gross and then for good measure they pee all over the nest which <laughs> helps to crystallize it yeah you got it yeah you got to glue it together <laughs> cement it with your pee yeah and then you're left with a little time capsule mm-hmm. that paleontologists can study those to learn about what was in a region jim again jim says has a lot of experience studying pack rat mittens yeah he showed us something they, they can be surprisingly big so it's you get yeah. some really cool stuff here's some special examples <laughs> <laughs> there are a few cases of insects in amber that are preserved with little gas bubbles <laughs> emerging from their rears <laughs> that have been interpreted as the gases being expelled from the gut microbes as the insects were preserved in amber. <laughs> or in layman's terms, fossil farts. It's a bug fart. It's a little bug farts. In <laughs> what that what and that's a cool thing because if you can study the chemistry of the gases in a bug fart, that can tell you about their gut microbiome. <laughs> that's so there's fantastic. always something cool to learn from even mm-hmm. the weirdest little... I'll see if I can get pictures of this. This is out of a book. My source is a book that Carl Melling talked me into buying, which is a really cool book. And I'll post a link to it on the blog post. Uh, here's another example that I thought was really cool. This is a study from Baldanza et al. 2013 looking at early Pleistocene marine deposits. Mm-hmm. And they found these big structures that are some over 100 centimeters across, full of organic material, that have been interpreted as fossilized ambergris. Oh. Ambergris is a material that builds up in the guts of sperm whales. That's this sort of waxy material that builds up in their guts until they eventually, oftentimes it seems, cough it up. Precious ambergris. Precious ambergris. And what they found, one of the biggest clues that they found that this was fossilized sperm whale ambergris was inside the chunks of fossil were something that you find pretty exclusively inside sperm whale ambergris, which are squid beaks. Nice. (laughs) Nice. And that's got to be one of the coolest cases of fossilization that I've heard of. That's fantastic. And this is... This whole episode has pointed this out, but it, it's a great thing to mention. Uh, me and David often comment on the fact that the more tragic the event in the past, the better the paleontology is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's cool to have an animal fossilized. If the whole family went down, though, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Score. Jackpot. And I've told my coworkers this before, and they, they think it's the funniest and most morbid thing ever. <laughs> But there is a flip side to it. The funnier the story, it's also almost equally as good. Oh, absolutely. Hey, you found bug farts? That's fantastic (laughs) and hilarious. (laughs) Hey, if you thought poops and farts were funny, there was a study that came out a little while back that found in a fossilized worm cocoon Mm -hmm. in Antarctica from 50 million years ago, the apparent oldest known sperm cells. Nice. (laughs) 
old school stuff. <laughs> and then there is my favorite, my favorite non-poop case for this episode. I'm ready. This uh, the, uh, A number of papers have come out on this in the recent years. These are trace fossils that I believe were or a lot, largely or totally from South America mm-hmm. that... You know, when you think of a footprint, a footprint is deforms the sediment by squeezing it and pushing it around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were trace fossils that showed erosional patterns. That is to say, sediment was removed All right. from the substrate. And the patterns of removal are very similar to what you see following the expulsion of liquid waste from modern ratite birds like ostriches. Oh. And because these are very large, and because they are nearby ornithopod tracks, these traces, which have been called urolites, are interpreted as fossilized remains of dinosaur pee. This is a place where a duckbill lifted its leg. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I want us all to picture it. (laughs) (laughs) This is a place where a dinosaur peed on the ground and it left a little erosional, like a cutout in the sediment. Cut a trench. (laughs) (laughs) So if you know how the Grand Canyon was. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like that. Kind of like that. Probably an equivalent amount of liquid. Yeah, um, something like that. That's what that was one of the things they said in one of the papers was that it was like an ostrich pee track but bigger yes <laughs> that's, that's a lot of waste <laughs> now granted that there's only a handful on those i don't know how so to speak solid those results are but the point being there's a lot of really fun fossilizable evidence of expulsions mm-hmm. from prehistoric creatures that you can find in addition to poop it's it's one of those subjects that the things that are commonplace are often overlooked, but often some of the most important because mm-hmm. they're commonplace. You have huge sample sizes to work with, which is extremely important, and you always have the chance to find really weird ones. Poop is something yeah. that typically we try to talk about as little as possible <laughs> in our day-to-day lives for most people. Yes. And so it's it it often just gets kind of pushed by the wayside but there could be whole fun kids books about fossil poop and there'd be no lack of fun examples and cool things to talk about absolutely and it deserves it yeah it does and it's a really you know and anytime you talk to a person who studies coprolites they mention that well it's, you know it always makes people laugh and mm-hmm. this episode has been really goofy and fun because yeah. we're talking about poop but at the same time it's extremely useful for all the reasons mm-hmm. that it's useful to study stuff today. Oh, blah, blah, blah. and it's also has that benefit of being really familiar. Yeah. So you end up in really fun conversations and scenarios. When I was doing my background research for this episode, I came across the story of Glenna Dean, who is an archaeologist who has studied coprolites for a long time particularly in places like Texas. And in fact, the article that I, I found called called her or referred to someone who had called her the Empress of Excrement. Fantastic. <laughs> and 
uh, she did a lot of research. She studied poops for a long time. And one of the things, in, in particularly in the early times of the studies, in order to get a sense for how to interpret the poops in the archaeological sites, she and a handful of volunteer researchers <laughs> pooped in the caves and then studied how their poops behaved and what happened to their poops it's and like they the recorded what they ate <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the potty farm the potty farm <laughs> oh man so the the take-home point is that there's just there is no end to the really fascinating stuff that you can come across while studying fossilized poop it tells us so much and it purely gets overlooked because it's gross. Yeah. And the, the whole reason it's gross is because it has stuff in it, like parasites and germs. <laughs> but it tells us so much about the world around us. And, I mean, like like we said, we use it for population studies a day, for health analysis. Yeah. We can use it for, you know, tracking animals and everything. Uh, you know, the, the uh, ecological DNA studies that can sample DNA to just tell what animals are around without actually finding them. As you mentioned, poop's a great source for that. Yeah. So it's something that's still important today. So there's no reason it wouldn't still be, be just as important for the old ones. Absolutely. Dear listeners, we hope you had as much fun with this episode as we did. We are 12 <laughs> and that is okay. <laughs> big, big thanks to Lauren for this suggestion. This was a ton of fun. Yes. Uh, this was a crap ton of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Big thanks to everybody who is listening to the podcast. If you have a suggestion for a topic you would like to hear, I hope that you realize that there is no subject too taboo for us to cover <laughs> as long as it relates to our core topics of paleontology and evolution and such. And yet there, there's not much we're not willing to talk about <laughs> when it has to do with cool science and fossils. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lauren, for giving us the chance to talk dirty for a little while. <laughs> Listeners, we release new episodes every fortnight, two weeks from now. Keep an ear out for episode 31. In the meantime... Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions, your thoughts. We are all over the social media. There will be a blog post, as always, with links to our news stories and links to more information and pictures. This time there will be many Copperlite pictures. I hope I can find some good free-use pictures of Copperlites on the internet. If you like looking at poop, check in. Hey, come take a look at our poop. The Common Descent <laughs> Podcast. Check out our poop. <laughs> And as always, it is March. If you would, if you, if, hey, if you think that this is worth paying for, <laughs> hop on to Patreon. <laughs> I can't think of a better episode to make the Patreon plug. This is, this is what we'll use to promote from here on. <laughs> would you, would you like to pay to listen to this crap? Well, then go on over to Patreon. When I called up Jim. Mm -hmm. And I said, Jim, we're doing an episode about copper lights, and I wanted to ask you your, for your expertise. Jim said, so what you're saying is you, you, you thought crap, and you thought of me. 
only he didn't say crap. And I said, yes, that is exactly the case, Jim. Thank you very much. So big thanks to Jim also for lending me uh, some of his time to tell me of some of his tales. And thank you again for joining us. We're going to wrap it up. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. I, if I had to rate this episode, I'd give it a two. (laughs) I've been sitting on that for like 15 minutes. (laughs) Not, not, not sitting on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Right now okay. we're done. Yep. 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 We're yep. leaving. <laughs> Bye. Cue the outro music. <laughs> Quickly. Somebody stop me. <laughs> <laughs>